0: Let me see if there's anything else I'm thinking. Thank you so much for your prayers last week. Some of you prayed for me when I was out in California. Some of you even remembered or tried to remember what time it was, although you kind of got mixed up on your times, you know, back and forth from Pacific to Eastern. But it all worked, and God heard all of those prayers. Uh, have you ever prayed a prayer in arrears? you know, Have you ever, have you ever prayed and, and you said, well, you promised somebody I'm going to pray for you tomorrow at 2 o'clock, and then at 3 o'clock you realized, ooh, oh, no, and so you just did one of those God's outside of time kind of things. and So you said, you know, Lord, I, I know you see the beginning from the end or the end from the beginning. And, uh, and so I'm just going to pray for him now. And I, I trust that you'll just be able to count that for uh, 2.30 rather than 3.30. So, well, anyway, thank you so much for your prayers. The Lord blessed uh, my talk and used it, in a, I think, in a good way. Well, tonight we're in Matthew chapter 24 as we continue working our way through through the New Testament, through the book of Matthew. Somebody asked, well, what are we going to do when we get done with Matthew? Well, we're going to go right back where we left off in the Old Testament, and we'll start the book of Job uh, when we get done here in Matthew. Uh, Last week, we left off in verse 44 of Matthew chapter 24, so tonight we'll pick it up in verse 45. But Join me as we ask God's blessing. Father, thank you for... Uh, your good word to us. Thank you for tonight, Lord, and for the the truths of your word, Lord. We thank you for our fathers today, and Lord, we once again, those of us who are fathers, Lord, we desire to be the very best father that we can be. Lord, we love you with all our hearts, and we ask that you speak to us tonight in a um, encouraging way, Lord, always in a gentle way, because we know that uh, we we fall short in so many areas. And yet, Lord, in a a constructive and in a helpful in a beneficial way, Lord, because we need to be nudged forward in this walk that we're on. So bless us, help us, help us tonight, Lord, to see uh, now in light of eternity, that would be good, a good prayer to pray this evening. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. You know, you've heard the expression, the truth is stranger than fiction. And indeed it is. Several years ago a report came from the European city of Prague. A woman was deeply depressed. She had just discovered that her husband was involved in an adulterous relationship and was about to file for divorce. She sat in her fifth floor apartment contemplating on whether to kill herself, I mean sorry, kill her husband when he came home or to kill herself. She decided on suicide and dove off of the balcony. Sad story up to this point, right? Well, amazingly, her husband happened to be walking by just as she was jumping off the apartment building balcony. At that exact moment, believe it or not, the distraught wife landed on top of her unfaithful husband. And as justice would have it, he died and she survived. <laughs> Here's the point of the story. Always watch and be ready, for you never know when someone's going to drop in on you unannounced. Jesus promised that He would return to this earth. He's planning to drop in on planet earth. No one knows the day or the hour of His coming, but Jesus is coming in the clouds to snatch away those who are His and those who are ready. As we learned last time, the Bible teaches us two second comings of Jesus. You see, Scripture predicts that this age will close with a final seven-year period of judgment. It's called the Great Tribulation. It ends when Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, fights the armies of the Antichrist, and sets up His kingdom on the earth. Prior to His return to earth, the earth is aware of Jesus' coming. As a matter of fact, a sign appears in the sky, the sign of the coming of the Son of Man. Humanity will brace for His return. The world will rally together. The wicked nations will come together to defend the world from the Christ to whom it belongs. And yet, a very different event occurs before this last seven-year period begins. Jesus comes at that time, not with a sign in the heavens, but as a thief in the night. Rather than preparing for war, the world is business as usual. Folks are starting families. They're acting, acting as if life will go on forever. Jesus catches the world by surprise. He returns unexpectedly without notice to rapture his church. There's two comings, one at the beginning of this seven years of judgment for the church, one at the end of this seven years of judgment to judge the world. The rapture of the church. You know, folks today, even Christians, it seems, often ridicule this idea of the rapture. The rapture has gotten a bad rap. Skeptics laugh it off as wishful thinking or even science fiction. Imagine what people thought when Noah warned the people of his day about a global flood. You know, at the time, it had never rained on the planet. I'm sure they laughed him off. They thought he was a fanatic. But then it started to sprinkle. What's that? And then puddle. And then before long, a flood, a downpour. Hey, truth is stranger than fiction. The Bible promises that a day will come that will take the world by surprise. That without warning, Jesus will return in the clouds to airlift His church from this planet. He'll evacuate His bride before the world is plunged into great tribulation. The Bible teaches that Jesus' coming for His church is imminent. Now that's an important word, a theological word, imminence. It means it can happen at any time. No other prophecy needs to be fulfilled before Jesus returns for you and me. I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture because I believe it best conforms to the biblical doctrine of imminence, that Jesus will rapture us at any time. You see, if the rapture occurs before, or, I'm sorry, after the tribulation or at the midpoint of the tribulation, or other ideas that have been postulated then Jesus can't return until something else happens first. I can then know the day and the hour. As a matter of fact, I can just count the days off by recognizing the tribulation landmark on the time scale. You see, for the day to come totally unexpectedly, it has to be the first day of the end of time. I believe that the rapture of the church is the very next event that we're waiting on in Bible prophecy. And I believe that Jesus is at the door right now waiting on the Father's go. We need to be ready. The first 44 verses here of Matthew chapter 24 are often called the Olivet Discourse. Jesus preached a sermon in which he revealed specific signs that would signal the end of the age and his coming judgment and therefore the rapture. That would occur before the judgment. Remember, before judgment comes down, the church goes up. That's why at the end of his sermon, verse 42, Jesus invites us to watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In the first half of this Olivet Discourse, and it runs all the way through chapter 25, Jesus gave his disciples information on the end times. Now, in the last half of this discourse, he provides information inspiration for all times. Jesus is going to tell us to be vigilant. Like a battery, we need to be ever ready, always looking, always hoping for His return. In the four teachings that occur at the end of chapter 24 and in chapter 25, Jesus is going to tell us now how to be ready for His coming. And He's going to warn us about four things. About our steadfastness, about our spirituality about our stewardship, and about our service. We'll begin in chapter 24, verse 45. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? In other words, an owner leaves town and he places his servant in charge while he's away. His pantry is full. There's plenty of food to feed his household if it's managed well. Jesus says, Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Like the owner in the parable, Jesus will also go on a long journey. Before he left, he stockpiled his pantry. He's given grace and mercy and good news and spiritual food to his church. And our job is to pass on that love, to serve up that joy, to give grace to those who need grace. To feed spiritual truth to those who are hungry. To give them food in due season, as he says here. And if the master finds us doing so when he returns, we'll be blessed. We'll receive a good reward. We'll be happy. We'll hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at the servant's reward. He says, assuredly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. Understand, in the Scriptures, God motivates His people in three ways. Sometimes He motivates us through fear. Other times, through love. But believe it or not, most often, He motivates us through rewards. You see, like a father, God provides His kids spiritual incentives to be faithful and to do His bidding on the earth. And please know Spiritual rewards are really big deals. I hope you never make the mistake of thinking, Oh, I'm a Christian. I'll make it to heaven. You know, I'll just leave the rewards to someone else, man. After all, heaven is going to be heaven. Trust me, that thinking is extremely naive and short-sighted. Rewards are important. Our faithfulness on earth is going to shape the capacity to which we will enjoy heaven, and the degree to which we will participate in heaven. It's sobering to realize that what you do or don't do for God now in this life is going to impact you a zillion years from now. That's sobering. Notice here the faithful servant is made ruler over all the master's goods. We'll talk more about this in a minute. Verse 48. But if that evil servant says in his heart, My master is delaying his coming, And begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him. And at an hour that he is not aware of and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you want to hear Jesus say, or you expect to hear Jesus say, that's not a threat, that's a promise. He's got heavy words. The evil servant will live forever with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Throughout eternity, he'll experience a gnawing frustration, a nagging realization of what he didn't do and the opportunities that he failed to take advantage of. In verse 48, this servant is called that evil servant. The word translated evil is the Greek word kakos, which refers to something which was good, but is now bad. For example, an out-of-tuned instrument or a piece of rotten fruit. Something that was once good, but is now bad. Here's a person who started out well in his, his walk with God, but he fell into a theological error. You see, the servant grew discouraged. He abandoned this doctrine of imminence. Rather than live in the mindset that the master is on a journey But he can return at any time. This man yielded to the idea that he had plenty of time. And this is a common mistake. We become aware of the signs of the times. We get excited. Jesus is coming. It has to be in our day. But as the years roll by, as the decades pass, some of us, we've lost that fever pitch, that sense of urgency and that wondrous expectation of the Lord's certain return. Some of you have given up hope. You know, I'll never forget before Zach was born, I was so pumped. We had had a few false alarms that made me assume that the baby would be early. The false starts only ramped up my enthusiasm. I mean, I was sitting on go every single night, the whole month before the due date. Before we would go to bed each night, I'd make sure that Kathy's bag was packed and it was sitting right by the door. And that I had a pocket full of quarters. Because at the time, that's how you made phone calls. You you put a quarter into a machine. And I made sure every night that the car was full of gasoline. But here's what happened. By the time Zach was finally born, I'd become totally exhausted. I'd been sitting on go since the end of April. And Zach didn't eventually get into the world until May 29th. I ran out of steam. I failed to sustain my enthusiasm. And when the day finally arrived, I had to stop by the ATM for money. I had to go by the convenience store to pump gas into the car. And I didn't even know if we remember the bag. I wasn't ready. Hey, don't let that happen to you at the rapture. Stop looking for Jesus' imminent return, and you become subject to two strands of a deadly virus, brutality and carnality. Notice what this evil servant does. He begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. First, he becomes brutal. I mean, he beats, begins to beat his fellow servants. You know, this world is a cruel place. And if Jesus isn't returning to rescue me from this world, th- then what's our tendency? It's to toughen up. Man, I-, I need to get a thicker skin. I need to harden my heart, man. I need to just accept it. I'm in a dog-eat-dog world. You see, just the opposite attitude develops when I live my life in light of the Lord's recoming. If eternal rewards are just around the corner, I don't need to fret about today. If Jesus is about to return to right all wrongs, then I can wait on His justice, and in turn I can extend mercy. You see, the doctrine of imminence ensures that we live mercifully, not brutally. And it also insists that we live spiritually, not carnally. You see, stop looking for the rapture and the second evil virus it breeds is carnality or worldliness. If heaven is distant, then while I'm here, I might as well grab for all the gusto I can. Hey, you only go around once. Satisfy yourself. That becomes your theme. You see, nothing is a stronger motivation for godly living in this life than the realization that at any moment I can be standing in the next life face to face with my Lord, my Lord who died for me. As 1 John 3, verse 3 put it, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. When Jesus comes, I want to be found with a soft heart and with a pure heart. Well, chapter 25 begins, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, in the New Testament, the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Ephesians 5 speaks of the church as the spotless bride of Christ. And here Jesus speaks of ten virgins who go out to meet the bridegroom. It seems to me that these virgins represent the future church. Understand the bridal customs in the time of Israel, in ancient Israel. The betrothal would take place at the home of the bride. That's where the groom would pledge himself to his bride. But then he would return to his home where he would go about making plans, making arrangements, building a bridal chamber, a house to live in for him and his bride. When the wedding neared, the bride was told of the groom's arrival, but not the exact hour. Sometimes he would come in the morning, he could come at noon, he could even come at midnight. She was just to be ready. When he did arrive, he would exchange vows and then he would take her back to his house where they would feast together and then consummate the marriage. Our groom, Jesus, follows the same customs. You see, the night before his crucifixion, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus became betrothed to his bride. But then he departed this world. He went to heaven, back to his home, to prepare for us a place. Jesus today, evidently, is still working on the bridal chamber. But soon, He's going to return for His bride. And He can come at any time, according to custom. In this parable, ten virgins are waiting for the bridegroom. They've been waiting all day and into the night. Their lamps are lit, awaiting their beloved's arrival. Verse 2 tells us, Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Not only are these ten virgins a type of the church, but the fact that they're holding lamps in their hands makes them witnesses. They're being lights. They're being a beacon for Jesus. Notice too, their lamp is fueled with olive oil, a biblical type for the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Well, you can't be an effective witness for Jesus without the power of the Holy Spirit. He's the fuel. But these virgins now have been waiting a long time. So long, in fact, that they've fallen asleep. At midnight, someone shouts, The bridegroom is coming. The bride is awakened. You know, the church, too, has been waiting a long time for her groom. 2,000 years and longer. That's a long time. And I believe for several centuries, the church sort of fell into a snooze. They fell asleep concerning the doctrines of the rapture. But that's changed in recent years. When Israel became a nation again in 1948, it was like a midnight cry. Behold. The bridegroom is coming. A nation that had not been a nation for two millenniums rose from the ashes. Ezekiel 36 and 37 were fulfilled before our eyes. An event in our lifetime has awakened the church. This midnight cry has gone out and the bride has awakened. The bridegroom is coming. We we know the seasons now. We know the, the general time now. We just don't know the day and the hour. We need to wake up. We need to trim our lamps and we need to be a bright light in this dark world. Back to the parable now in verse 8. But the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Notice to be an effective witness for Jesus. As I said, we need the oil of the Holy Spirit fueling our lamp. In other words, we need to live in the Spirit and walk in the Spirit and be led by the Spirit and be filled with the Spirit. Oh, how we need to be fueled by the Holy Spirit. How you can trim and try all you want, but without the oil, you won't shine brightly. You need the Spirit's supernatural help. Now, the foolish virgins, they asked the wise for oil, but the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And notice this, the power of the Holy Spirit is non-transferable. You got to get it for yourself. You can't get it off someone else. You know, you can be around believers that are moving in the Spirit and yet still be unmoved personally. That happens all the time. To fill your lamp, you've got to go back to the source yourself. Jesus said that He alone could baptize with the Holy Spirit. He said, you remember, He said, John baptized you with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Jesus is the baptizer of the Holy Spirit. And to get this power, to get this oil... You have to go back to the source. It doesn't just transfer from one person to the other. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. And Jesus draws, boy, a sobering conclusion. He says, Watch therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Man, you've been, you need to be ready. Now when Paul ra- writes of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he concludes, comfort one another with these words. And indeed, the rapture, when understood properly, is a very encouraging, comforting doctrine. Unless you're running low on oil. And then you should read the passage that we just read and feel troubled. Notice several points from this passage. First, all ten women are virgins. They're all waiting on the same bridegroom. They all have lamps. They're all being lights for Jesus. There's only one difference. Some are filled with oil and some are not. The five wise virgins are relying on the Holy Spirit. The five foolish virgins are walking in the flesh. They're trying to trim their lamp and be a light on their own, without oil. They've made no effort to fuel their lamp with the oil of the Spirit. What's provocative about the passage is that the virgins who are trusting in the Spirit are taken while those who are walking in the flesh are left behind. And some folks have concluded from this passage that what Jesus is teaching here is a conditional or a partial rapture. That not all believers or those who say they're believers in Jesus will be raptured. Only those whose lamps are full of oil, who are leaning on and depending on the Holy Spirit. Now there's a few verses you might want to consider along with this. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 22 Jesus addresses the church of Thyatira. It was a compromising church. And Jesus says to Thyatira, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. Notice, this is a compromising church that gets cast into great tribulation. Contrast that message to Revelation 3, verse 10. There Jesus says of the faithful church of Philadelphia, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. Implied is that because they've persevered, they would not be plunged into judgment. But but it's almost as if he's writing to them as the exception to the rule. Implied is that those who don't persevere will be cast into judgment. Now, whether you accept a conditional rapture or not, the point of Jesus' parable is crystal clear. When He returns, we need to be ready. None of us are without excuse. This means that trusting in the Spirit, not in the flesh, walking in the Spirit, not leaning on our own energies, that that we need to be men and women, believers in Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit. This is important. Today, while we have the time, let's make sure that our lamps are full of oil and that we have a fresh empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The parable at the end of chapter 4 deals with our steadfastness. This last parable, it deals with our spirituality. The next story, it deals with our stewardship. You see, in truth, and especially in light of Jesus' soon return, nothing that, that we own really belongs to us. Our time and our ability and our monies and our energy, they all belong to Jesus. All we've received is on loan to be used for God's glory. We're stewards of His resources. And this next parable examines the consequences of our stewardship. Verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. Now Understand that a talent was a measure of money. It was quite a large sum, in fact. It was the equivalent to a year's wages. I like to think of these talents as opportunities. God has given to each of us opportunities relative to our time and our abilities and our resources. Opportunities to serve Him and to count for His kingdom. The point for us is not necessarily the opportunities that we possess, because God gives to some people greater opportunity than He does others. The responsibility for us is to simply take advantage of the opportunities that we're given. And that's the lesson we find in this parable. He says, Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Notice again the phrase, after a long time. You know, we're in that long time right now. That's where we are. The master is away, but soon he'll return. And he'll settle scores with his servants. He'll ask each one, what did you do with the opportunities that you were given? Some got more opportunity, some got less. The question is, what did you do with the opportunities you were given? Verse 20. So he who had five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Don't you want to hear those words spoken over you one day? I mean, that's my one solitary goal in life, is to one day hear Jesus say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus continues, You were faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And notice here the nature of eternal rewards. Jesus mentions authority and capacity. You see, faithfulness on earth determines our reach and our depth in heaven. Our rule with Jesus in His kingdom and our enjoyment of heaven are enlarged by our service here on earth. Understand, everybody in heaven, even everybody in the kingdom age, when Jesus returns to rule over this earth, everybody under Jesus' rule is going to certainly enjoy being there. Nobody's going to get to heaven or or be a part of God's kingdom and and look around and say, oh, bummer. I mean, heaven is, is heaven. I mean, it's wonderful. It's glorious. Everybody's going to have... The time of their life. But not everyone is gonna have the same status or the same capacity for enjoyment. In other words, we're all gonna be full, but we're all different size bottles. See what I'm saying? Your service on earth is gonna determine whether you're one of those little dinky bottles on the left or whether you're one of those big one liter bottles there on the right hand side. I mean, whether you're gonna hold a. Everybody's gonna be full. But, but are you going to hold a little bit? Or are you going to hold a lot? That's what's being determined right now. And, and we're all going to rule with Jesus when we get to heaven. But, but it's yet to be determined where you'll rule or, or how many cities you'll rule over. I mean, in the kingdom age, somebody's going to have to rule over Snellville. But somebody else is going to get to rule over Honolulu. I'm shooting for Honolulu. I'm sorry. But this is why just getting to heaven is not enough. You know, if that's your attitude, you're going to be disappointed one day. You're going to wish you'd done more. You'd have made a better effort at this thing. You can radically shape your eternity by laying up for yourself treasure in heaven now. Eternal rewards are really big deals. Well, verse 22 says, He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And to me, this is so encouraging because notice this. The guy who multiplied two talents into four and the man who multiplied five talents into ten, they received the same commendation. You notice that? The same words of... Of, of approval or spoken over them. The yield was less, but the reward was the same. You see, it's not always the amount that determines the award. I mean, mere numbers, nickels and noses, stuff that we like to count as a measure of a person or perhaps a pastor's faithfulness is not always the indicator, at least from God's perspective. Of the f- effectiveness or success of that person's ministry. You know, here's the problem: you never know what the initial investment was. You never know whether you say, "Oh, he only he only brought back two talents," but you don't know that he started out with two talents. This guy over here he brought back five, but you don't know that he started out with five. You see, the opportunity. Some of us have greater opportunity than others, but the question is, what did we do with the opportunities that we were given? And only God sees clearly the opportunities that were initially there in the equation. Well, verse 24 says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. Notice this servant was afraid. That that was the problem. His fault was his fear of failure. He was afraid of losing his one talent and so he wasted his opportunities to multiply it. He buried it. I wonder how many of us have buried talents and wasted opportunities for the exact same reason. We never really tried Because we were too afraid to fail. And notice who the servant tries to blame for his fear. (laughs) He blames his own master. He says, Lord, I knew that you were a hard man. Oh, when it comes to Jesus, that's just not true. Our Lord is not stern with His servants. I mean, think back of Abraham and David and Peter. God bless these men even though they botched things up at the time. Abraham failed to trust God and sought a child by Hagar. To this day, the Jews are still dealing with the child's animosity. And yet God has kept His promises to Abraham. Our blunders don't thwart God's faithfulness. God is not a hard man. God is a generous and kind master. That's why we should be willing to take risks to step out and serve Him. One of my favorite quotes is attributed to Theodore Roosevelt. I like Teddy Roosevelt. He, he's one of my favorite characters in history. He, he was a little self-absorbed. You know, they used to say about Teddy that, that, that he wished that he were the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. I mean, he was kind of into himself. But he... Uh, I always thought that was funny. But. but anyway, he was a daring man. He was a courageous man. And I like this quote. He says, Far better it is to dare mighty things... To win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to take rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy much nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows not victory or defeat. I don't want to live in the gray twilight. Better to try and fail than to never try at all. You know, I believe that God would rather have a servant who's motivated and activated and yet prone to mistakes than to have a servant who's lazy and lethargic. Yes, Peter sunk beneath the waves, but at least he got out of the boat. Better to be a bit crazy rather than lazy. The worst move that you can make is no move at all. Be afraid to fail, bury your talent, and you'll lose the opportunity you were given. You know, it's interesting the scenario that Jesus doesn't parabolize in this story is the man who has a couple of talents, he invests them, and then he loses them. That's not the, that doesn't even get into the parable. Why? Because I don't think that ever happens. When you invest in the kingdom of God, you never lose. God always sees to it that your talent is rewarded, and invested, and multiplied in some way. It's impossible to use your talent for Jesus and it be wasted. Well, for the man who buried his talent, we're told, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. Here's the deal. The only way to lose God's blessing is to fail to use God's blessing. Hoard it, and then you'll lose it. But invest it, use it wisely, and more will return to you. You can't go wrong when you step out in faith and take a risk and serve the Lord. You might make some mistakes. You could possibly lose a little money, maybe suffer a little embarrassment along the way. But the lessons learned will far outweigh the effort lost. One day, Jonathan and his armor-bearer, they were on patrol. As a matter of fact, Jonathan woke up that day. I mean, he was just doing guard duty. He had no intention whatsoever of confronting the enemy. Combat was the last thing on his mind. And yet, as he and his armor bearer were out on patrol, he saw an opportunity. turned attorney he said to his servant, he said, Look, let's go over there to the garrison of these uncircumcised, for it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many Or by few. In other words, hey, here's a chance. Here's an opportunity. Let's go and let's just see what God might do. And God blessed Jonathan's daring faith. Two Israelites killed 20 Philistines. God rewards aggressive, opportunistic faith. God rewards faith and vision and initiative. You see, our tendency is to sit pat and to play it safe. And to observe the status quo. But God wants us to move out, not sit still. God wants you and I to be spiritual entrepreneurs. To take the blessings He's given us and use them back for His kingdom. To take risk for Jesus' sake. To not just enjoy the kingdom, but to seek to expand it. But of the man who buries his talent, the Lord says, Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. And here's the principle. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. You know, when it comes to faith, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. It's true. Faith feeds more faith. He says, And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, the Pharisees were a group of people proud of the fact that they'd done nothing wrong. Jesus is saying that that kind of self-righteousness, just just the fact that you're proud that you've done nothing wrong, hey, that's not the kind of righteousness that gets you into the kingdom of heaven. It's no big deal that you're proud that you've done nothing wrong. Sadly, there are churches full of folks tonight that, that are full of people just like that that are sitting back proud that they've done nothing wrong, but they've been paralyzed by fear, and they've done nothing right either. Jesus is saying that a true believer will be empowered by faith, not paralyzed by fear. A Christian's goal is not just to avoid evil and skate through the world, you know, in a nice way. No, a Christian's job is to go out and do good, to make a difference for the kingdom's sake. Don't be content to just be part of God's kingdom. Be on the lookout for ways to advance God's kingdom. This is what Jesus is saying to us. Notice in verse 31, Jesus begins the last teaching here in his Olivet Discourse. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Now these verses are actually a compilation of numerous Old Testament references. Let me give you a few. Zechariah 14 verse 4 tells us that at Jesus' second coming, that he will set his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Ironically, the very same place he's giving this teaching. Remember, this is the Olivet Discourse. It's being taught to the disciples on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us that when Jesus' foot hits the earth, the mountain, the Mount of Olives, will split in two. And it will form a valley leading up to the temple. Joel 3 verse 14 gives this valley a name. He calls it the Valley of Decision. And Joel says that all the nations will be gathered there for judgment. Here Jesus describes this judgment. Notice verse 32. All the nations will be gathered before Him. At the time in the valley of decision or the valley of Jehoshaphat, Jesus is going to separate the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats. Now recall Matthew chapter 13. There Jesus told an interesting parable. He called it the parable of the tares and the wheat. When the tares or the weeds grew up alongside the wheat. The servants wanted to pull the tares, but the owner of the field told them to wait until the harvest. If you pulled them up too soon, you could pull up some of the wheat along with the weeds. Jesus was teaching that in this present age, the wicked and the righteous will exist side by side. That they will sort of live, you know, stalk by stalk. It's only at the end of the age that the separation will occur. That the judgment will take place. Only when Jesus returns, the righteous or the wheat will enter heaven and the tares or the wicked will be thrown into hell. Now the separation of the wheat and the tares, it occurs in two phases. In one sense, Jesus will separate the righteous from the wicked at the rapture of the church before the first, the final seven year period of great tribulation begins. But the book of Revelation tells us that the gospel will be preached and that people will be saved during the great tribulation. So another separation will occur at the end of those seven years. And that's the one we're talking about now. At his second coming in the valley of Jehoshaphat or in the valley of decision, another separation is going to take place. The sheep will be separated from the goats, the righteous from the wicked. And this is what Jesus is describing here in Matthew chapter 25. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Lord Jesus, where did we ever see you in prison stripes? I mean, they're kind of puzzled. And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, You did it to me. Now here's a passage with both a prophetic application and a personal application. Prophetically, Jesus is fulfilling the ancient promise that God made to Abraham. Remember now, Jesus was a Jew. In fact, the bulk of this Olivet Discourse is addressed to who? To Jewish people. You know, he told him, he said, remember that your flight not be on the Sabbath. I mean, who gets concerned about traveling on the Sabbath? Only Jews. So, I mean, this this whole discourse now is is targeted primarily toward the Jews. When Jesus talks about the least of these, my brethren, Jesus was Jewish. Therefore, his brethren were the Jewish people. Remember in Genesis 12, verse 2, God had told Abraham, I will make you a great nation And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Way back in Abraham's day, on the threshold of world history, God stated that He would judge the nations on how they treated Abraham's family, the nation Israel. Be kind to Israel, and God will bless the nations. Those who do, be hostile toward Israel, and God will curse those who make themselves Israel's enemies. Now, during the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist is going to wage war against the Jewish people. He is going to launch another Holocaust that will make Hitler's look tame. Jews will be starved. They'll be stripped. They'll be jailed. Their property will be confiscated. They'll be left homeless. This passage is saying To those nations who reach out in compassion to the Jewish people. The brethren of Jesus. You know that as you've done it unto the least of these. Jesus is saying, you've done it unto me. Be kind to the Jewish people. You're being kind to Jesus in that sense. And they will be blessed. They'll be the sheep. They'll be the good guys. The last time I visited Israel, I, I went to Yad Vashem which is Jerusalem's Holocaust Memorial. It's a powerful place to go. And there's a street there that, that is lined with long rows of trees. It's called the Avenue of the Righteous Gentiles. These trees that line the walkway are all planted there in memory of Gentiles who lost their lives trying to save Jews from the Nazis. Corrie Ten Boom has a tree planted there in her honor. In one sense, the sheep are the people and the nations who line that walkway. Who during the diaspora and then later in the tribulation, those who embrace Jesus and out of their love for Him, reach out in kindness to His brethren, the Jews. And as God promised Abraham, those who bless Israel, they will be blessed as well. They'll be the sheep. But in, but in another sense, we can apply this passage in a different way. For there's also a personal application. Jesus is also encouraging us to show compassion on the starving and the impoverished and the imprisoned and the homeless, no matter who they might be. And He provides us as Christians the most powerful motivation imaginable. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Now, what what more motivation do we need, you and I need, to get out? And to help those in need. Than to know that if we do it to them. We do it to Jesus. And that's the most powerful motivation we can have. Jesus loves people. He especially identifies with those hardest hit. By sin and suffering. Jesus is the God of the underdog. And he so empathizes with the down and out. That he takes it personally. When we go out of our way to help. He he considers it your acts of kindness. As if you've done them to him. You know, if you love Jesus tonight and if you want to show Him your affections, you can sing songs to Him and you can pray prayers to Him. But perhaps the best way to kiss our Lord Jesus is to find a needy person and treat that person to an act of kindness. Befriend an AIDS patient. Get a homeless man a job. Visit someone in prison. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me, Jesus says. Verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, remember the goats are stage left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice this. Who is hell prepared for? Was it prepared for mankind? Was hell created or invented for mankind? No, not not at all. Hellfire was never intended nor created for mankind. God created hell for the devil and his henchmen. No one is in hell tonight because God originally meant for them to be there. God loves them, He wants us all in heaven. People do go to hell. But they go to hell not because God desires them to go to hell. They go to hell because they choose to go there. They choose to follow the devil and his angels. They choose hell when they reject Jesus and go their own way. Jesus continues, For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? But then he will answer them, saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, someone might ask, Pastor Sandy, here people's eternal destiny is being decided based on what they do or what they don't do. Is this some kind of works salvation? And the answer to that is no. Jesus is not teaching a works salvation. Rather, Jesus is so sure of a true believer. He's so sure of their love in their heart. He's so sure that a true believer will share his heart for the needy and the sick and the imprisoned that he's not afraid to sort them out according to their compassion. It's not that that their compassion deserves it, but, but Jesus is just saying, your faith in me and your compassion to people, it just goes together. And I'm so sure of that, that you can just sort them all out by their compassion. And you'll have those who had faith and those who didn't. Jesus knows those who say they love God yet refuse to love their neighbor are deceiving themselves. Jesus is going to sort out the sheep from the goats according to their works because He knows that true salvation works into us a kindness towards our fellow man. He's he's safe in that assumption. Jesus is coming back. Have you gotten that message? Jesus is coming back, and we need to be ready. Tonight's passage teaches us how. Be steadfast. Be on fire spiritually. Be a good steward of the opportunities that you're given. And serve others, especially the down and out. The devil and his angels once gathered together for a staff meeting. The agenda came up with some new ways to try to spread you know, the evil of the devil and try to stop the spread of the gospel on the earth. One demon, he, he offered a suggestion. He said, why don't we just tell them that there is no God? Satan replied, man, don't be so stupid. You know, there's so much evidence that there's a God. No one's going to believe it if we tell them there is no God. What a ridiculous idea. Another piped in. Well, let's tell them there's no hell. Again, Satan shot down the idea. He said, man, he said, no. He said, it's obvious. Everyone would agree that there's got to be some kind of eternal retribution. Well, third demon, he suggested, I know. Let's trick them. Instead of no God, instead of no hell, let's just say, no hurry. There's no hurry. Just take your time to decide who you're going to follow. Satan replied, that's it. That's perfect. We'll just tell them there's no hurry. I hope you sense the urgency in tonight's message. Jesus could return at any moment. The bridegroom will return when we least expect it, when humanity is unguarded and is not expecting His return. That's why we as God's people, we need to watch and be ready. If we wait to prepare, that day may overtake us. And we'll have some deep, deep regrets that we'll take with us into eternity. Martin Luther once said, There are only two days on my calendar that concern me. First is today. Second is that day. Let's spend today preparing for that day. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. And for these wonderful chapters of scripture. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us without a hope, without a promise. Lord, that you have gone to prepare a place for us. And once that place is prepared, Lord, you're going to return to receive your bride unto yourself. Lord, help us be ready. Lord, help us to be on fire spiritually. Lord, help us to be steadfast in our commitment toward you. Help us, Lord to be good stewards of the opportunities we've been given and help us to serve others, Lord, even the the least among us. Lord, we ask that you work in our lives. Thank you for your wonderful words of truth and hope. We pray we'll hide these truths in our heart, Lord, and serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.